0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest
1: Dharma series. Namo <laughs> Namo sammā sambhutassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammā sambhutassa buddhaṃ dhammāṃ saṅghaṃ namassāmi one reason that
0: i ordained in the thai forest tradition what was because there was a tradition that tried to go back to the roots, tried to go back to the way that uh, they lived, practiced, meditated, contemplated in the time of the Buddha, as much as possible. And one of the reasons that I was attracted to Theravada Buddhism was because they hold as the the highest teachings, the original teachings, or at least as much as we can historically assume and determine what were the original teachings of the Buddha, Theravada Buddha tries to go back to that and hold that up as the the standard against which all other teachings are compared. So tonight I wanted to talk about not just the original teachings but the initial original the very first teaching of the Buddha but that had a cause and condition so let's go back a bit we're familiar with the story of how the Buddha left home he sought out teachers Felt that that wasn't going to lead him to the ultimate. He then went on a quest of extreme asceticism. Trying in different ways. During that time he had a group of five friends, disciples, who were practicing with him. Had a lot of faith that he was the one who was really going to do it. And eventually the Buddha had practiced fasting, extreme fasting to the point where he was so emaciated that he had so little strength he could barely keep up the daily functions of his body. And he felt he had taken that path of asceticism to its limit. not allowing himself any physical or mental pain. Pleasure. Not allowing himself any physical or mental pleasure. But after bringing it to the state, he asked himself, is there another way? Fortunately for us, <laughs> there was because otherwise there'd probably be a lot fewer people interested in Buddhism these days. (laughs) So he asked himself, is there another way to enlightenment? And then a memory arose, and this memory was a pivotal moment in the process of his awakening. He remembered a time when he was a young child, a prince. His father was doing an annual Brahmin ritual, uh, a plowing ceremony, something which the kings in Thailand still do. And it was a bit boring, so he wandered off a bit and sat under a rose apple tree. And as he sat there alone, serene, quiet in nature, undisturbed, uncomplicated, his mind just naturally went into this deep state of meditation. A state of meditation where his mind became unified, absorbed, a deep state of concentration, a a state of inner peace that had great pleasure rapture bliss accompanying it and he stayed in that state for quite a long time and when he came out his attendants and nursemaids and father were all very impressed his father was a bit worried but and then they carried on with daily life but as the Buddha had reached this crucial moment in his path of, of struggling for awakening this memory came up of this deep state of concentration and he asked himself, could this be the path? Could this be the way to awakening? And he looked into his heart and and the answer came yes, this is the path. Why am I afraid of the pleasure of inner peace? Why am I afraid of that pleasure which is not based on sensual desire. It's not based on anything unwholesome. And he could see, yes, there's nothing to fear in that. And so he decided to try a whole new tact. And he felt, because I'm so exhausted from this fasting, absolutely no physical strength, it's not easy to get into deep states of meditation. So why don't I just take some food? And at this point, he took some plain boiled rice and bread. And his five companions then saw what he did and were disgusted. And they called him self-indulgent. Reading boiled rice and bread. Now, it's a good thing he didn't have ice cream or spaghetti or, you know, I mean, imagine what they would have said. You know, like, give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, and a cappuccino, cafe au lait. You know, just boiled rice and bread. These guys were really hardcore. And they said, Gotoma, the seeker, has reverted to luxury. <laughs> <laughs> luxury, man. Boiled rice and bread. And so they took off. <laughs> they left them. they lost faith, they, they headed off. The Buddha was then not yet the Buddha, referred to as the Bodhisatta. But he was alone now. And he wandered and he found this beautiful place next to a stream under a big tree what we now call the Bodhi tree, the Tree of Awakening. And during this time, although it's not recorded in the suttas, it's a commentarial story that he was on alms round and he was given some milk rice by a young woman named Sujata. And to this day, just across the river from where the Bodhi tree is in Gaya, there's a small village called Sujata village. The second time that I went to India, I went as a monk on pilgrimage. And while we were staying in Gaya. I was there with a couple of the monks from our monastery in Thailand, and, and I said, why don't we go on alms round? Let's go on alms round to Sujata village. And so we we wandered all the way through Bhut Gai, and we made our way across the bridge of the Naranjurug River, and made our way to Sujata village, which was just a collection of mud, brick, huts, probably all, not all that different from the way it might have looked in the time of the Buddha. And there were three of us, and and we arrived at this village. It certainly wasn't a Buddhist village, and, and it was one of these villages that, uh, as soon as you arrive, it's like the most interesting thing that's happened in a month. And so everyone starts to come out. Kids are coming out, running out, um, you know, people of all ages coming out. And at first, they didn't know quite what we were doing. But we, had, we opened our bowls, showed them we had bowls. The archetype of a spiritual seeker with an alms bowl is so deeply embedded in the heart of Indians, it didn't take them long to figure out what was going on. But first, they wanted to offer um, uncooked rice and said, no, sorry. They didn't speak any English, so we just had to be creative with our yeah. hands. And uh, then they understood. Okay, yes, you want some cooked food? Okay. So the grandmother there, an old bent woman, she was she was making these um, cow pies from buffalo or, or cow dung, and the, which they then dry in the sun or stick up on the wall to dry. Her hands were full of cow dung, and then she went into the house and came out with rice and doll, wiped her hand a little bit on her dress, and then scooped the rice and doll up with her hand and (laughs) put it into our bowls. (laughs) And we're very grateful. Thank you. And good fiber. And it didn't matter what they offered, because the whole scene was so inspiring. It was just like we had been transported back 2,500 years, and we're going to this ancient village. And some old woman with cow dung in her hands gives us food with her bare hands and throws it in our bone. And, and we chant a blessing. And then we're heading out. And as we're heading out back over the bridge, we could see the the stupa, the Bodhi stupa, in the distance. And it occurred to me that... It felt like we were walking, literally walking in the footsteps of the Buddha in the same path that he would have been walking as he was returning to the Bodhi tree. And uh, and it just felt like so much of, of what I had hoped to experience practicing in the same way as they did in the time of the Buddha. So now back to 2,500 years ago. The Buddha returned to the tree, sat down. At this point, he must have intuitively known that he was getting very close. and He sat down under the Bodhi tree with a fierce determination. He said, I will not rise from this spot until I have attained full awakening let my bones remain let all the flesh all the blood dry up leaving nothing but sinews and a skeleton but I'm not going to get up until I've attained full enlightenment Our teacher Ajahn Cha, he had a teacher named Ajahn Tongrat. Ajahn Tongrat was a bit eccentric. And he was an early disciple of, of the father of the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Man. And it didn't take Ajahn Tongrat very long to get fully enlightened in his practice. And then at one point, Ajahn Tongrat was setting up his own monastery, and then Ajahn Man was traveling around and and uh, was staying at Ajahn Tongrat's monastery. And that morning, they were on alms round. They were on alms round through their local village. Ajahn Man, Ajahn Tongrat, the other monks, all in single file, barefoot, quiet, silent, restrained, not looking around, just. Looking at the ground ahead of them, and as they were getting food, right in the middle of the village, Ajahn Tongrat starts to—he opens up his bowl and he starts to reach in there and and starts to eat his food, which is the last thing you're supposed to do on alms round, especially with Ajahn Man in front of you, with your teacher in front of you. So he's walking along through the village, and he, um, he picks out a cucumber, you know, the noisiest food, and he, he bites into it. As Ajahn Man's walking, you can hear Ajahn Thongrat behind him gnawing on this cucumber. And uh, the other monks behind Ajahn Thongrat couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, This is highly unusual. He, he, what's he doing? Ajahn Man didn't say anything. He he knew what was going on. But he didn't say anything, and they all went back. And and then that night, Ajahn Munt gave a really fiery, long Dhamma talk. And then afterwards, Ajahn Tongrat's disciples said, Well, what were you doing in Almsround this morning? He said, Well, look, if you want to get a good Dhamma talk from Ajahn Munt, you've got to rev him up a bit. So these days, every time I come to the United States, people try to rev me up. And uh, what what they do is they give me some um, little contemporary booklet on Buddhism. They rev me up. And so I was reading this booklet, beautifully produced little booklet, and it was talking about the Buddha's enlightenment. I'll read you just this account. So after the Buddha had eaten Sujata's meal, gone to the Bodhi tree. This is the account they have here. That night he slept peacefully, (laughs) abandoning all longing for enlightenment and liberation. He now had no desire, no longing, no future, no hope. Everything was shattered. He slept a dreamless sleep as though without a mind. When he awoke in the morning, just as the last star was setting, he suddenly became full of awareness. From sleep, he had awakened into full consciousness. Now that's a path of practice I want to follow. (laughs) Forget about meditation. You just go to sleep. You have a really good night's sleep. You wake up. Boom! Hey! Fully enlightened. Imagine that. So let me offer an alternative version of that same story. The Buddha sat underneath that tree with that same determination. And with that memory of those deep states of consciousness, he decided to, to follow up on that path. And so throughout the entire night, he didn't sleep at all. But in the, for the first four hours, say from 6 until 10, approximately, he developed his mind in very deep states of concentration called jhana where the mind is incredibly peaceful, unified, still, boundless, like boundless consciousness, absolutely purified, at least temporarily, into the deepest states of consciousness possible, and then came out, and during that time he he looked back. He started looking back and back and back and both this lifetime, and then it kept going into previous lifetimes. And he looked back in previous birth, and then 10 births, tr- previous 100 births, pre- thousands, hundreds of thousands of births. And he kept going back and back and back. And as far as he went back with this psychic power of being able to remember the distant past. He just saw himself in different roles. This this stream of consciousness ever changing, constantly changing, taking on this role, that role, this body, that body, this circumstance and that circumstance. And you might you might think, well, what what reason did he do that? I mean, what's the purpose? But having a direct experience of all of those states of existence, it, it counters the idea that if we can just arrange the right circumstance then we're going to be happy. Because he could remember he had times where he had he everything and within one lifetime we experience so much, so many different types of circumstances and. Still, there's this very deep set idea that if I just get a bit more, then I'll be happy. If I just get a slightly better situation, then I'll be happy. If I just get a different relationship, then I'll be happy. Or if I just get reborn in heaven, then I'll be happy. But in the very long history of Buddhist cosmology. Buddha taught there is no situation, there is no realm that we haven't experienced. And it still hasn't led to a sense of perfect, lasting contentment. So then he went back into these deep states of meditation, within which you can't contemplate, but it gives the mind a huge amount of power and clarity and then he came out again and and in the second four hours say approximately from 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. he was contemplating the workings of Kama, how all beings are heirs of the Kama, how they arise from the Kama, how they cease from the Kama now, in, in Buddhist terms, the way the Buddha explained the law of karma, karma doesn't have a sense of mystical fatalism about it. Karma refers to intentional action. And in every moment we have this opportunity and responsibility, we're literally creating our future. Everything that's led up to this point right here, we can't do anything about. That's just the result of previous causes and conditions. But how we respond to that, that's literally creating our own future, creating our future suffering or creating our future happiness, depending on how we respond to it. So in that watch of the night, that that phase of the night, the Buddha had this very deep insight into the the workings of karma. And then, then into the last phase of the night, he again went into this deep state of meditation, came out, and then what arose in his mind were the four noble truths, understanding the nature of suffering in the world, the cause of suffering in the world, the possibility of absolute freedom from suffering in the world, and the path to get there. I'll say a bit about more a bit more about that later. So at this point the Buddha, his mind was absolutely liberated and freed. And it he stayed at that at that area for what's that? Seven weeks. It's kind of, kind ex- of take in what he had experienced. Initially, he had a few doubts about whether anyone else would understand. It's just so refined. But who's going to understand this? Why bother teaching? It's just going to be a burden. But eventually he, he relented. He said, that there will be some people who understand. And he, he looked around and he, he thought, well, who should I teach first? And he found out that his five earlier friends and disciples were staying in a deer park. It's known as the deer park near Benares. Sarnath. And so he decided to walk then from Bhut, Gaya to Sarana. And it was only until I was in India I realized how far that is. It's about 130 miles. And in those days, if you wanted to get from one place to the next, you just walked. That was it. You could probably take an ox cart, but it's faster to walk. So he set off on this journey to teach. Now it's traditionally known or thought of that the very first teaching of the Buddha was to those five disciples. But on the way, something happened. There was an incident. On the way, the Buddha must have uh, looked pretty serene after his full enlightenment. Because on, on the way, he met another wanderer, another spiritual seeker. Who came up to him and said, You look so radiant. Who's your teacher? And let me just read you what the Buddha said. So this is this is actually the first teaching of the Buddha. Buddha responded, I am an all transcender, an all knower, unsullied by all things, renouncing all, by craving ceasing freed. And this I owe to my own wisdom. To who should I concede it? I have no teacher, and my like exists nowhere in all the world with all its gods because I have no person as my counterpart. I am the teacher in the world, without a peer, accomplished. And I alone am quite enlightened, quenched, whose fires are all extinct. I go to Sarnath now to set wheeling, to set rolling the wheel of Dharma. In a blindfold world, I go to beat the deathless drum. So then, this wanderer, Upaka, he heard this. And then he shook his head, and <laughs> he shook his head and wandered off and said, "Good luck. <laughs> Maybe so." And it was very interesting, because you know, this was the very first teaching of the Buddha, and it wasn't actually very successful.. <laughs> it was just so direct. You know, who is your teacher? I have no teacher. I am the all transcender. I am the all knower, without a peer. I am the only one who's enlightened in this world. And and the listener, it was just too much. He said, "Right, well, <laughs> this. You can you imagine what was going on in Upika's mind? He said, this guy's really out there." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I hope it's true, buddy. <laughs> and he, and he, and in the text it says. And then he walked down a side path, with <laughs> shaking his head. <laughs> so, but the Buddha had a long ways to walk, so he probably had a, a lot of time after that to to reformulate his teaching strategy. <laughs> and then he came finally to Saranath and. His five former disciples saw him coming in the distance, and they said, "Here comes that self-indulgent, so-called spiritual seeker, that one who has reverted to luxury. Don't show him any respect. Don't get up for him. Don't, you know, don't show him any respect that we normally would. Just we'll, we'll put out a seat for him. If he wants to sit down, he can. But and so as the Buddha got closer." And then they started to notice, geez, he looks kind of radiant. <laughs> and uh, they couldn't help themselves, and they got up and they took his robe and ball and sat down. And, and, and the Buddha said, Look, I have attained to full awakening. I have attained to the deathless wisdom, the deathless knowledge, the deathless awareness listen, I'll teach you. And they said, no, 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 no. You gave up. You know, you were good, but you became self-indulgent. Sorry. We're not interested. And the Buddha again repeated, look, I am not self-indulgent. I did not give up the struggle for enlightenment. I have attained the ultimate awakening that we've all been seeking. And said, no, 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 no. Forget it. For the third time, the Buddha said, and finally, the Buddha said, look, have I ever said this to you before? <laughs> have I ever spoken to you like this before? He said, well, no. So, said, well, just listen. I said, okay. So they listened. And, and then he taught them what's known as the teaching of putting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Now let me just chant you the
1: introduction
0: to this teaching.
1: Hanutarang avishambhadiṃ sambhunchitvātathāgatho pāta-mānyāng adhesesī Dhamma-ca-kang-hanu-tah-ra-ng Samadevapavadento Lokeyam-pati-vatiyam Yata-kata-ubbho-hanta patipati Cha tu sparya sachesu vishudhanyana tasanam dhamma chaka patena, Veya-kavanapatenam sangitandham Then
0: the Buddha began teaching. I said, Bunks. there are these two ways, these two extremes which do not lead to enlightenment. The first what we call Bali Kama Sukali Kanu Yoga. It's it refers to the path of self indulgence. Looking for happiness through beautiful sights, beautiful sounds, beautiful tastes, delicious tastes, uh, comfort, pleasure in the body, even concepts. A life that is devoted merely to self-indulgence, he says, it's impossible that this would lead to awakening. And he described it in these terms. The first term that he used was called Hino, which means low, vulgar, base. Now this is the same word that those people who might have studied other Buddhist traditions might have heard the term Hinayana. Now the word Hino, Hina, same root. So Hinayana refers to the vehicle which is low, base and vulgar. So this was clearly a a put down. This is a a term which um, no spiritual tradition would ever call themselves Hinayana. And this path of self-indulgence, Buddha said, it's hino, it's it's low, it's it's um, it's of the village, it's it's worldly, it's not leading to enlightenment. And the other extreme is, at that time in Buddha, in at that time in India, it was considered. spiritual path of, yes, we realize that self-indulgence is not going to lead to awakening, so what we want to do is deny ourselves all pleasure whatsoever, both physical and mental, the same path that the Buddha had tried. And when the Buddha described this, he didn't call it keno. he didn't call it lower vulgar, because in a sense it was a spiritual spiritual renunciation. It was a sincere attempt to practice a spiritual path. But he did say that it is painful. (laughs) Extreme asceticism. First of all, it's painful. Second of all, it doesn't lead to enlightenment. So that's the other extreme. But I have found the middle way what we mean by the middle way in Buddhism doesn't merely mean the way that we want to follow, which is, is neither oh, the middle way between two extremes or the middle way between uh, two things that we don't want to do anyway, so we call it the middle way. But he was very clear the middle way is, is what is uh, the Eightfold Path. And this is the first time that he teaches the Eightfold Path. He doesn't go into it in detail yet. Right view, right intention or motivation, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then the Buddha teaches Four Noble Truths. He goes into these truths that he had discovered in the last phase of the night. I said, because there are these Four Noble Truths. The first one, Dukkha. First Noble Truth in Pali is just one word, Dukkha. And it has very deep and all encompassing com- ramifications. There are many forms of Dukkha. I mean, the Buddha talked about birth is du- Dukkha, aging is Dukkha. I mean, certain, certain things are obvious. Aging is, is, is Dukkha when the body starts to fall apart and it's painful and increasingly weak. And can't do the same things that we used to do. Death is Dukkha. You know? Generally beings have a love of life. sorrow, pain. There's many forms of dukkha which are very common. uh, Being associated with the things that we don't like. Being stuck with things we don't like is dukkha. Being separated from the things we love. This is dukkha. Not getting what we want. This is dukkha. Hmm? Basically, not getting what we want. This is dukkha. But even more profound than that, he says, just these five khandhas this body and this mind, having a body and the mind is ultimately dukkha because it is a compounded phenomena. It arises and passes away. If we identify with it as me or mine, then that that very identification is going to lead to, to suffering on some level. And then the second noble truth, well what's the cause? Dukkha doesn't just arise by itself. What are the cause and conditions for Dukkha? The craving. The craving that's bound up with birth, that's fueled by passion. The the delighting in this and that, the, the craving, the wishing, the clinging, the attachment. whether it's sensual desire or a craving for, a basic craving to exist. And interesting enough, even a craving to not exist. So these are all things that are going to lead to Dukkha. Well, fortunately, the third noble truth is that there is a possibility of absolute freedom or cessation of Dukkha. And it's through the abandoning, the relinqu- relinquishment of this very same, this this very same attachment, clinging, craving, that is causing the dukkha. By having a different relationship with that, a relationship of, of letting go, of setting down, of relinquishing this this leads to the cessation of all suffering peace a very deep inner peace a liberation mind is liberated freed and then the fourth noble truth again comes back to the noble eightfold path right view right intention or motivation right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and right concentration to go into that in detail would be Another Dhamma talk. But when the Buddha was teaching, especially these early Dhamma talks, he taught in a way that was like a guided meditation, a guided contemplation. So while he's teaching, the, the disciples were actually bringing it into their own hearts. The listeners were, were consciously bringing it into their hearts, contemplating it uh, in their own experience. And while this teaching was happening, the eldest of those five disciples saw the Dhamma. He saw the Dhamma as as his teaching was happening. And he got a glimpse of what the Buddha had experienced underneath the Bodhi tree. The Buddha was saying, look, as long as I didn't experience the Truth, these Four Noble Truths, I never claimed to be awakened, but it was only after (coughs) fully understanding all these Four Noble Truths that that I claimed to be enlightened. Often when we're taught Buddhism the first thing they teach you is the Four Noble Truths. But actually fully understanding even the First Noble Truth would lead to a radical transformation of our minds. In the gradual teaching, progression of teaching that the Buddha would would lead people through, the gradual training, it was only after very deep states of inner peace would he introduce the Four Noble Truths. And then the minds were in a state where they're just ripe, sensitive, ready, you hear that, and if the understanding goes deep, then a huge amount of letting go can happen. A huge amount of delusion or darkness can be replaced by wisdom. And this is what happened to one of the disciples, Kandanya. I try to imagine how the Buddha felt after walking all that way, after overcoming his own doubts of whether anyone's going to understand, after teaching Upaka, who just blew him off, and then finally he gave a teaching and, and someone understood it. And from that point on, he, he knew the mind of Kundanya and, and he, he changed his name to Anya Kundanya, which means Kundanya who knows, from that point on, he was known as Anya Kundanya, and he became the very first one to to truly see the Dhamma after the Buddha. I'll stop there tonight. Try for these words for your reflection. I'm open to answer questions. If anyone has any questions, Either what I was talking about or another subject, please feel free to ask anything you'd like. (coughs) Can you please
2: please,
0: uh, describe the training, the particular training of uh, uh, Ajahn Chah to get to these four noble truths of enlightenment? Are you sure? Are you sure you really want to know? Ajahn Chah was very creative. And so the first noble truth is suffering. And Ajahn Chah had a, a great ability to talk at, at great lengths. And there were times when people would come to see him. And especially people from like city people from Bangkok, and they would come down and have to sit on a concrete floor and be kind of uncomfortable. And he's teaching them, talking about the first noble truth, and their knees are getting painful, and they kind of keep shifting their position, but they can't go anywhere out of respect for Ajahn Chah. So he say, "Have you seen the first noble truth yet?" You know, knowing that they're in pain. Knees are painful, back's painful. And they uh, they said, No, no, we don't understand yet. And so they then keep on talking, talking, talking. And they keep, they're in more and more pain. Ankles, knees, everything. They keep shifting their legs. And and, uh, have you seen the first noble truth yet? Do you understand dukkha? And they give some answer, but he said, "No, nah, you don't understand yet." Then he keep talking and talking. There are more and more pain <clears throat> until finally they they still didn't see the first noble truth. And He had to let them go, but he would do things like that just to try to <laughs> well to look clearly at where the suffering was coming from. pain or discomfort, and mental pain, mental discomfort from our reaction to it. Very different things. And which is more painful? If there's just pain in the body, that's actually not so bad. But if we if we are aware of it, we go into it, um, we're, uh, we can actually be interested in it, fascinated by it. What is it actually? What is pain? Is it stable? Is it moving? Is it pressure, heat? You go into it. Where is it located? But as soon as we start to not like pain, hate the pain, be resistant to the pain, then immediately there's tensing. There's it becomes really painful. And then as soon as we identify with it as my pain. And then it becomes even more painful and then if we take it a step further and say well I'm in pain there's something wrong then it's worse and then if there's something wrong then I'm probably doing something wrong and I'm a bad person and I'm gonna feel guilty and, and then it's really, really painful. And so where is the pain coming from? So the, at times the Ajahn Chah style would be to use a variety of different situations to get people to look at the first and the second noble truth. Their suffering and the cause of suffering is attachment, craving, clinging. What are we hanging on to? What are we attached to? What are we clinging to? What, what are we resisting? What's really causing the pain? There was another time where every fortnight all the monks in the monastery get together and they recite, it's called the Patimoka, the, monastic discipline, and that takes about 45 to 50 minutes, a very quick recitation and then the chanting afterwards, and Ajahn Chah typically would give a talk uh, which would last a while, and this was this would happen uh, on the full moon and the new moon and typically on those nights uh, and the quarter moons as well, in Ajahn Chah's monastery, he had to sit meditation all night or walk meditation all night. You had to had to stay up all night meditating one way. And so on on one particular night, for example, uh, he's giving his dhamma talk. And usually, what happens is he'd go on for maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour or so. And then and then afterwards, you'd have an opportunity for a cup of tea, a sweet cup of tea. And it's probably the only sweet cup of tea you've had in the last two weeks since the last newer full moon. And uh, and that sweet cup of tea becomes really important if you don't if you can't have it whenever you want it. And the kettle was already brought out and it was sitting there, and uh, but you couldn't go get your cup of tea as long as that in was talking. You had to wait for him to finish. And this night he just kept going on. An hour passed and he's going on, and uh, people. You know, you're just sitting on concrete floor, no cushion. I mean, this is really reverting to luxury. Zafu, zabuton it's the path of self-indulgence. But <laughs> in, in in those days, just concrete floor and um, you know, no cushion, and so it, it's it's more difficult to sit up straight, and you know, you know your your ankles are kind of being pressed into the concrete, and, and uh, it's painful. And Ajahn Chah keeps talking, going on, talking. He's looking around, seeing how people are doing, and, and uh, people are, you know, people who are there afterwards start to, you know, they, they say, well, start to think, well, when is he going to end? When is he going to end? <laughs> <laughs> And at the same time, part of the mind is really interested because he's talking about Dhamma, and it's fascinating and it's inspiring. And, and part of the mind is just becoming more and more aware of pain in the body, physical pain. Even if we're a good meditator, if you're just sitting in one spot for two hours, three hours, it becomes incredibly painful. And then Ajahn Chah just keeps going on and on and on, and you can't, you can't get up, you can't really stretch your legs out. You can't do anything like that. You, know, you have to just grin. or well, you don't grin either. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just kind of bear it with patience. But um, people, would, people would react in a whole variety of ways. And in doing this, Ajahn Chah could see that it was bringing up all sorts of different mind states in people. Uh, some of the less enlightened were getting really angry. <laughs> Why is not he let us go? I, it's time to have the cup of tea. <laughs> and then Ajahn Shah would he'd just go on and then he'd start telling the same stories again for the second time. <laughs> and you realize that you know, he's, he's just doing this <laughs> as a, as a test. Go on and on, you know, right through midnight and and uh, and right up until it's time for the morning bell to go. And he said, "Oh, look at the time." And, and by that time, the the kettle of tea had all gone all cold, and ants were crawling up into it. And he said, "Oh, what a shame! And you can't. You know, it's, the tea's cold and it's got ants in it. Take it back to the kitchen." It's time for morning chanting. (laughs) But in that process, people are forced to look at their own minds. They're forced to look at suffering because it's unavoidable. Normally, when discomfort becomes too strong, we always have a way out. There's always a way to switch postures, go to the refrigerator, turn on the air conditioner. There's innumerable ways of avoiding suffering, especially in the modern world. But... In an old style forest monastery there was no escape and you just had to look at it and see there's pain and then there's my reaction to pain first and second noble truth and where's the real suffering where's the real cause of suffering and if you could you could really see that the, the cause of suffering was in this reaction of aversion, the not wanting, the trying to get rid of, the not accepting things as they are right there in the present moment, then a lot of the pain and suffering and discomfort would would cease. It still might have that physical discomfort, but you could see it more as just a flow of nature. discomfort arises passes away it's replaced by comfort comfort arises it passes away it's replaced by unhappiness unhappiness arises and passes away it's replaced by happiness happiness arises it passes away and in the midst of all this if we can maintain a centered balanced clear awareness then we can start to develop a certain independence or freedom from all of these external conditions, so our heart doesn't have to be thrown around by the world. So that's one example of how Ajahn Chah would get people to understand the Four Noble Truths. So I'll be talking to at least midnight tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Any other questions? So now you're afraid to ask questions because the, <laughs> the answer's going to go to midnight. Oh please go ahead. Right now, I am in. Conventionally speaking, I am in common ground. Ultimately speaking, I'm in common ground. Actually. Uh. <laughs> Eventually speaking, I'm in Minneapolis and uh, soon I will return to uh, New Zealand. For the last three years, I've been setting up a monastery in New Zealand near Auckland. Uh, before that, I had done some teaching in Australia, Europe, and before that, I was based in Thailand. I spent a total of 16 years in Thailand. So most of my training was done in the Anjan Chah tradition in Thailand. So these days, I'm still very much learning, practicing, sharing what little I can that's a benefit to others. But still very aware that that uh, you know, it, it's the whole life. It's just a learning process. So I always feel like I'm just a beginner, just learning, just starting out.
3: Um, I was kind of surprised at the ending of your talk because it sounded like you were stopping mid-sentence and so I was curious how the story continues and maybe that's too much more of a Dharma talk but I thought is there a piece that follows that introduction of the four noble truths and um, as I understand it it sounds like The Buddha and the monks were first in a state of um, real peace, inner peace, before they received the teachings. So it wasn't kind of like, we shuffle in here, we sit down, we do a little sit, and now we're kind of ready to learn about suffering. But that they had already attained a certain amount of um, jhana or, or, or real deep calm and peace
0: in order to learn this. Normally you think of someone as being in the state of suffering to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. I'll respond to that last part first. In the time of the Buddha, many of the, the listeners, while listening to Dhamma talks that the Buddha was giving, actually became enlightened while listening. And during these first two Dhamma talks that were given to the five disciples, after the second Dhamma talk, they all became fully enlightened arahants. But you're very correct in saying that these weren't people who just walked off their nine-to-five job. Uh, for years, they had been. Struggling, you know, I think, literally struggling on a path of self-mortification, of uh, purification, trying to find some way, with the utmost sincerity, to try to find a way uh, that would lead to the end of birth and death, what we call samsara. And they didn't know which way to go. I mean, just, we try this, try that, and and, you know, but they were, I mean, they were pretty hardcore, and and ultimately committed. And so they'd done a lot of groundwork already. And a lot of the people that the Buddha was teaching, they had been practicing for many years in a variety of other traditions, and then they came to the Buddha and heard a teaching, and kind of clicked, because they had done so much groundwork, whether it's in, in concentration or developing Pure life. Yeah, so they were they were ready for it, and the Buddha was very careful in in who he taught, and when, and he would he was very sensitive in you know, being able to detect now who is ready for enlightenment, and then he would give a teaching that was appropriate for that person. He wouldn't just teach anybody at random the same thing, but he was—he was very careful to teach just the right thing at the right time. And because because he was so um, intuitive, intuitively aware of where people were at, and because his presence and teaching were so powerful, then uh, had a powerful impact on the listener. So the story does continue, and it continues on actually to the talk I gave a couple nights ago. <laughs> In this whole process of of struggling or, or searching, there were some metaphors that came up for the Buddha that relate to um, the Middle Way. And one of the metaphor that came, that a strong, powerful metaphor that came up for him that he remembered and taught, was that and he saw uh, a, uh, a green, soggy log floating in in the water, and he thought, you know, if you try to take this this soggy log that's floating in the water, and you try to use it um, to make fire with In those days you make fire by rubbing sticks together. Uh, There's no no way it's going to work. And for him this was a simile for if someone's living a life of self-indulgence in the world, both mentally and physically, the fire of awakening is never going to take. And then he thought, well, if you take a, that, same, that same soggy stick and you put it, you, you, you take it away from the pond and a you know, hundred yards from the pond, and then, well, it's still soggy and you're trying to make fire from that, it's still not going to work. And this is like a, a spiritual seeker who has taken himself out of the world temporarily in retreat. Often in a hut to cave somewhere, but mentally, they're still immersed in the world. It's like you're on retreat and you're dreaming about all the, all the things that's not happening on retreat. <laughs> 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 and he said, no matter how much you rub these sticks together, it's just not going to create fire. But if you take that that stick and you bring it out a long ways from the water and you let it dry out and then and then, you rub it together with persistence and then you can make fire. And Ajahn Chah would play in the simile as well. It has to do with, with how we relate to our practice. Because I mean, he told the story of uh, like an old man who had a, some fire sticks, and a young man comes along, and the old man tells the young man, "Look, if you just take these two sticks and you rub them together, you're going to get fire." And the young man's a bit skeptical, he said, "Well, look, you know, that seems rather implausible." And uh, so the old guy said, "Well, look, just try it." I can promise you it's going to happen. And the guy's like, "Yeah, right." I say, "Okay, I'll try it." So he he rubs the sticks together for a while, and then you know, gets tired and he stops. So nothing's happening. And he rubs the sticks together for a while, and then he gets a bit tired and he takes a nap. He gets up, rubs the sticks together for a while, and you know his arms getting tired and he stops. And he said, Look, you know, he goes back to the old guy and says, Look, I tried, from my own experience, I can tell you that by rubbing sticks together, you're never going to get fired. And child, will say, You know, practicing meditation is the same way, the path of practice is the same way. If we practice with an intensity and then just drop the whole thing, party. And then practice with intensity and then party or sleep. And practice with intensity and party and sleep. Then you were never going to make fire with those two sticks of meditation. The two sticks are samatha, if you possibly. Any other questions before midnight strikes? Yes. Um,
3: in the story of the Buddha attaining life of the Bodhi tree, uh, there's part of the story where there's uh, an encounter, his first encounter is with Mara. Is that true? said said that added on? where Mara comes in, tries to raise doubt in Buddha?
0: In the straight Sutta, account of that story. There are no elaborate accounts of Mara coming in and trying to attack him. However, the story is really beefed up a bit in the commentaries. That's one things the commentaries are, are there for. They really they, they embellish. So in the commentaries you get some really good stories of Mara coming in um, challenging the Buddha with all sorts of t- Various temptations, whether it's uh, self-doubt, uh, whether it's sensuality, um, all sorts of things. The armies of Mara, the daughters of Mara, everything. And uh, these are good stories, and that's why they they have become part of the of the tradition, because they relate to the kind of same types of doubts or the the obstacles that we'll experience in meditation. You, know, you just have to recognize these things. And every time that the Buddha sees Mara, he sees what Mara is up to. He's not fooled. And his response each time is, I know you, Mara. And that's all you have to do. You just have to clearly know this is Mara. And then, every time in the story, Mara says, he knows me. And then he, has to, he runs away. He knows what I'm up to. And, and our mind's just like that. You know, if we can see the tricks of our mind, once we're, once we're on to them, once we know them, then you say, ah, I see you tomorrow. And then it, it goes away for a few seconds. And then, <laughs> and then it comes out from a different angle. <laughs>